So follow me, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but whatever, uh, what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Lord, would you allow this text of Scripture to settle into our hearts by virtue of the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you allow us, Lord, to be humble and teachable, that maybe the, the things that we have raised up in defenses over the past few weeks because of the things that we're going through would be able to be settled down and would not hinder us from receiving what it is you desire for us to hear and the work that you want to do in our hearts. So, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And, Lord, allow me as your messenger simply to be your mouthpiece, that you would be glorified and your heart would be heard through the preaching of your word. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. 
Well, in my many years of ministry, one of the privileges I have had is to visit a number of different countries, in particular to help pastors in what it means to be a pastor. And quite often I am, I am there to, to deal with the, the subject of preaching. But there was one occasion when I was going to the, the city of Kirovichapetsk, which is in Russia, kind of in, in 14 hours kind of south of, uh, of Moscow by, by train that would be. I was there and I was teaching a class. And one of the things that just hit me was how adamant and how passionate uh, there, uh, a genuine hatred uh, was present among the pastors for one of the doctrines that I, and likely you, and many other Christians hold dear. And it's the doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints. An expression uh, that is uh, often used to describe that is once saved, always saved. That when Jesus Christ saves someone, that is secure. Uh, that it won't change, that you are His. And it was despised in particular as I asked them questions about it because they looked over at the church in the United States of America and said, you're a Christian nation, so why is it that your president can have sex with an intern in the Oval Office? Why is it that Hollywood can put out such filthy movies? Why is it that there's so much abortion and racial uh, hatred how is it that there is so much promiscuity? And on and on they went. I was truly surprised about their view of American culture. And I had to tell them the sad news that the USA was not a Christian nation. Yes, it was founded on a Judeo-Christian ethic, but it was not by any means a Christian nation. Now certainly, although there are many God-fearing Christians in the country, there were many who identified with the church, such as at that point in time, our sitting president, but who did not truly embrace the gospel or seek to live their lives in accordance with the word of God. From the perspective of my Russian brothers, to identify as a Christian meant that you were going to live according to some biblical standards and guidelines. And you know what? They were right. They were wrong about their assessment of Christianity in the United States, but they were right in their conclusion that true Christianity should bear fruit in holy living. And why were they right? They were right because that's what the Scriptures teach, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. And that's what we'll find in our text today. In our text today, we have two assemblies. The first assembly is, is described in verse 6, a Passover assembly. But then in verse 16, we have what is called a holy assembly. And the Passover assembly is the means by which Israel is going to gain their salvation. That's, that's what it's pointing to. That's what's being reminded of in that assembly. And the Holy Assembly is the means to bring about Israel's sanctification. And so, friends, this teaching us, this text is teaching us something very important, and that is that God's people are saved to be sanctified. In other words, salvation and sanctification are never independent of each other. 
they always go hand in hand. At the moment of your salvation, you are called to sanctification. The Apostle Paul stresses it in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, and here's what he says. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then he says in Romans 6.22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, descriptions of our conversion, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So salvation is that moment of conversion. But at that moment of conversion, you and I are called to live our lives in a way that glorifies Him. In a way, we are pursuing holiness. And so both of these go hand in hand. Salvation, sanctification, ultimately eternal life. So this morning, we're going to look at the text really under three headings. First of all, I want to kind of go over the whole text and, and think of a particular theme. And this is what we're going to find, the importance of remembering. At the end of what is known as the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, or the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, at the end of that, in the book of Deuteronomy, we have what is known as the Song of Moses. And it's kind of like the cap song of, of all these writings. And in that song, Moses appeals to his listeners with the following words. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will teach you. See, friends, there's an emphasis in the writings of Moses, and of course we understand that God is breathing out his word through Moses, so this is the emphasis of the heart of God, and it's an emphasis that his people will be a people who will take time to remember. Why? Because it's human nature to forget. Friends, we don't necessarily intend to forget. That's why it's called forgetting. We're not choosing to forget. It just happens. It's passive. In fact, we're convinced that something is so important that we would never forget it. How could we? But as time passes, so do memories. Eyewitness, they fade, they die. Events begin to fade. And today's issues become front and central. If the past is forgotten, or if it isn't necessarily forgotten, it certainly is rewritten so that the current generation doesn't understand the past or has a distorted view of the past. You may know the name George Santayana. He made a statement that was made famous by Winston Churchill. Here's what Winston Churchill said. Those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. Now, we know that statement. We've probably heard about that statement because it is written on the plaque as you enter Auschwitz concentration camp. And certainly at that place, that statement has a huge impact, doesn't it? But Santayana actually said 
this. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And that is what we're seeing take place in our country today. People forget the privilege in living in a nation that is free. A privilege and soft generation that has had so much handed to them does not understand the sacrifice that men and women have made in order to protect the freedoms that they enjoy today. The freedom to speak, the freedom to congregate, the freedom to, to bear arms, the freedom to have an opinion. The freedom to have and keep property and possessions. The freedom to travel. We could go on. All of that comes with a price. But it's so easy to forget the price that was paid so that that freedom could be maintained. I remember a few years ago going to um, the, the San Francisco National Cemetery every year. Typically, we try as a family to go there to honor um, my, my, my wife's uncle, Benjamin Castaneda, who died in Vietnam. And it's there in the Presidio. And on this particular occasion, there was going to be a ceremony. We were like, oh, that's cool. This would be great. We'll go to the ceremony. We'll take it in. And it was, it was a little kind of drizzly that day, a little windy. Um, but we're like, you know, we're going to endure this. We're going to be there. And as we, as we gathered and we kind of waited for the seminar and figured out what was going on, we understood that there was going to be a local U.S. senator that was going to speak, as well as a representative from a village in France. There was going to be a special ceremony to honor some men during World War II who fought off the Germans and protected this village. Now, what was really interesting is that the U.S. senator got up and that senator spoke, and it was clear from the body language and the words that were spoken that they really didn't want to be there. Their words were formal. They were empty. They were without passion, just kind of like reading through, yes, I've got to be here. I've got to say these things about this military thing, and uh, there it is, and I'm going to sit down. Then the representative from the village of France got up to speak, and about 10 soldiers and Marines were asked to come to the front. A French representative had come to honor these men. And, and, and all these years later, the village wanted to remember what had been done for them by others who had died to protect them. And so those few men who were still, uh, still living, they wanted to honor them. And so this French representative started to speak, and his words were strong and heartfelt, and genuine, and communicated a lasting appreciation for the sacrifices made. And each man was given a medal to be worn around the neck, and a plaque of appreciation from the leaders of the village. Friends, it was a hugely emotional event just to see these men walk up and to be honored for the the kind of labor and sacrifice that they made. And the reality is that those guys knew it. The the guys who died are the ones who really paid the sacrifice. But it it was a time of contrast, a cold, formal, empty address from a sitting U.S. senator, a passionate, heartfelt expression of thanks from a French dignitary. And it was honestly a rather embarrassing moment. One person was clearly not too concerned about remembering, only there to do their duty, 
The other was demonstrating that, that, that they had and were remembering and they were thankful. Now, friends, as we turn to our text today, there is a clear call for Israel to remember. Notice the following themes and statements. In verse 14, this shall be for you a memorial day. Verse 17, you shall observe this day. Verse 24, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. Verse 25, when you come into the land, you shall keep this service. Now, friends, what we have here, what's being discussed in this text that we read, we have two separate feasts. We have the Passover and we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The first, the Passover, which celebrates and remembers the right or the night of God's protection, lasts for one day. But this Feast of Unleavened Bread, which focuses on the life God has called Israel to live, it begins immediately at the end of the Passover and lasts for seven days. They are separate feasts, but ultimately they are celebrated as one. In fact, they are separate, but they complement each other. That's why when we go to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16, they are treated as one, being called keeping the Passover. And in these words that we've read so far, we can rightly conclude the following. Just going to go through this list rather quickly, but I hope you understand uh, where we're getting this from. Number one, this is a collective feast. In other words, it's both the Passover and it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a corporate feast. This is for all the congregation. This is a yearly feast. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening until the 21st day of the month at evening. So it's seven days. But if you remember, as we go back to chapter 11 and even to the beginning of chapter 12, that there was a need then to prepare for the Passover. And in the preparation of the Passover, you had to choose a lamb, and that lamb had to live with you for four days. So you add the four to the day of the, of the Passover celebration, as well as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you have now 10, 11 days that Israel now is supposed to be focusing on this time of celebration. It's also a permanent feast. Notice it was a feast to be kept forever. It was, wasn't to stop when you got to the Promised Land. I think that's really important for us to recognize because people tend to stop remembering when they feel they've arrived at their destination, when they've reached their goal, when something significant has been achieved, it's old news now. But there's a need to remember. And finally, uh, the fifth thing is, this is a memorial feast. In other words, it was a time to reflect and to remember. So remembering the Passover, remembering the unleavened bread, we need to remember something. We need to teach something. We, we need to be reminded what we have been called to now. So as Christians, we, we don't celebrate or observe these feasts. Why? Because they are all fulfilled in Christ. He is our Passover lamb. But we do remember. To remember is fuel for the soul. 
I just thought of three ways that we do remember. We remember our conversion, our, our, our sinfulness, our rebellion, all the things that were leading up to that, how God began to draw us to himself through circumstances and people and his word. We remember the joy of our salvation. Maybe that, that day when we were baptized publicly for all to see, when we made that statement that we are Christ's. We remember our conversion. We remember the hard times. And friends, all of us have had them. Times of difficulty, times of struggle, times of hardship that we've gone through. And if we're honest, we would not like to go through them again. But looking back, we're thankful that we did because God has used them to teach us more about ourselves and more about Him. We've been able to see God's faithfulness and His strength in our hearts as we have surrendered to His will during those times. So we remember them, and they're fuel for us. We got through them. We can get through what's going on today. But we also remember our joys. Graduation from high school and college. Engagement and marriage. The birth of children. People and friends that we've come to know throughout the years, fellow believers, amazing places that we've visited, the way God has used His church over and over again, the privilege of being involved in ministry. Those are just a few. We remember those joys. That's what we sit around and talk about and reflect on. We are a people who are called to remember. So with that kind of as a backdrop now to understanding what God is saying here, there are two things that they are called to remember. They are, first of all, called to remember their salvation. Now, I'm deliberately reversing the order of the text for logical reasons because I'm putting salvation before sanctification. Now, some of the instructions for the Passover that are given here are repeated. And the Lord knows that we need to have things repeated, right? Just to get it into our head. But our Western thinking, we're like, why does there seem to be a repetition, repetition, repetition? Because we're very linear in our thinking. Give me the foundation, build on the foundation, continue on with more stuff. But in Eastern thinking, you can think of it more of, of, of a spiral. I'm gonna say it here, I'm gonna add more, I'm gonna repeat it, I'm gonna add more information. So it's just a different way of communication. Also, some of the instructions although repeated, will give a fuller picture and a deeper explanation. They add to what has already been said. So we want to emphasize now this idea of applying the blood. Now in this section, verses 21 through 24, we're, we're given four instructions for the Passover. I'll summarize them this way. Go, kill, apply, remain. Verse 21, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go select the lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. There's go and kill. Verse 22, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the, the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And then he says, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. So go, kill, apply, remain. Let's just kind of walk just slower through that a little bit. Go, go. So go select a lamb. Let me remind you of how Jesus now satisfies or meets the requirements of that Passover lamb that we, we looked at last week. It had to be male. Obviously, Jesus was male. Uh, it had to be 
one year old. In other words, in the prime of its life, Jesus was around 30, 33 or so. He was in the prime of his life. The, the lamb had to be without spot. Jesus was without sin. There was no fault in him, Pilate says. So he was like us, friends, in every way except without sin. He was pure. He was spotless. But there's the sense now for this Passover meal. Go, go select the lamb. Secondly, kill the Passover lamb. I want you to get your Bibles and turn to the, the Gospel of John. And I want you to look at chapter 19, if you would, please. And this is really, really important for us to see. And the reason it's important for us to see is this. The death of Christ is framed with Passover in mind. John chapter 19. And we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to highlight a couple of things here. Here we have um, Pilate presenting Jesus to the crowds, delivering Jesus to be crucified, as well as the crucifixion and death. And I want you to notice in verse 14 how this all begins. It says in verse 14 of chapter 19, the Gospel of John, Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. That's how this begins. Okay. Then all these events take place. Presenting Jesus to the crowds, delivering to be crucified, ultimately his crucifixion and his death. Then I want you to notice verse 31. He says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not rem remain on the cross, right? In other words, the day of preparation now, the day of preparation for the Passover, this was the time when Passover, uh, the preparation was taking place for the Passover lamb to actually be slaughtered. The death of Christ is framed here with Passover in mind. So this, this lamb had to be killed. See, what John is saying in the Gospels there is this. Don't you see that the one who's being crucified is the real lamb? He's the real sacrifice. That's what he's driving. That's why those details are important in the story. Number three, apply. Apply the blood of the Passover lamb. Now, it's important to remember that the death of the lamb was essential, but it wasn't enough. The blood of the lamb had to be applied, right? I mean, this is the instruction. You kill the lamb, but then you now apply the blood to the lentil and the doorposts. And just like the blood is applied to the doorpost of the house, so it is applied to the cross where Jesus Christ died on our behalf. So when the Apostle Paul talks about the bloody sacrifice of the lamb of God, he says to the Colossian church these words. And through him, that's Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now notice he didn't just say his body, his sacrifice. He's identifying this together as the cross. Right? So you see these themes coming together. Now, do you remember what Jesus drank when he was on the cross? Again, in chapter 19 of the Gospel of John, we read the following. A jar full of sour wine stood there so that he, they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Again, John here is continuing to connect dots from the Passover account. You're very familiar, I'm sure, with Psalm 51, where David is repenting and he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Why? Because the hyssop was used in the sacrificial ceremonies where blood was applied. Now here in Exodus 12, we get the deeper and fuller understanding of how the blood was applied to the doorpost. This plant, this hyssop, is used to spread the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. And the same plant is lifted up to Christ on the cross to give him a drink when he's thirsty. The connection cannot be clearer, friends. But then we're also told to remain, to not go out of the house. Why? Well, the destroyer is coming to execute judgment. He's coming to strike you, the text says. Friends, we cannot play fast and loose with the gospel. These are serious words. Friends, to go out of the house was to sign your own death warrant. It was to feel the, the full brunt of God's justice and wrathful judgment. Now, friends, we, we have language in Scripture that talks about the importance of, of being protected in God's community. The Bible cautions us, first of all, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves with God's church, as some people are doing. Now, that's not just a casual, oh, I happen to go to Tahoe this weekend. This is a deliberate and purposeful wandering away for the fellowship of God's people. And also, the Bible teaches in the context of church discipline. When people do not humble themselves in, in a rightly ordered church discipline, the, the scriptures say that they are to be put out of the church or delivered unto Satan for the destruction of their flesh. It's like, wow, man, that's really heavy stuff. Delivered unto Satan, what is that? I mean, you have this picture of, you know, this Molech fire, people being thrown in there, that kind of a thing. No, the, the, the point here is this. That God has created the church to be his refuge, his place of safety, his community, his assembly. And this is where he's carrying out his will through his body. There's a, a huge need to be connected to the local body of believers. When you're not, you're left to the domain of Satan. So in other words, they're no longer afforded the protection of the church and then are fully in Satan's domain and are open to greater suffering from the schemes of the devil. So if you happen to be bouncing from church to church or just kind of not going to church for a bit and maybe coming for a little bit, understand that when you're not engaged in being a part of God's people, I don't mean just the physical Sunday morning gathering, I'm just talking about being a part of a fellowship, you are allowing yourself to be in a place where you're going to be under the brunt of greater attack and greater struggle because you're outside of this protection of the church. Now, friends, there's, there's a picture here, isn't there? This picture of people gathered in a house 
celebrating the Passover, and God says to them, now when you do this, and the blood's applied, don't go outside until morning. Now the Hebrews who were participating in the Passover need to take God's words of warning seriously. They wouldn't be able to say, oh, I remembered. I hadn't brought in the trash cans, so I need to go outside and get them. No, what did God say? Don't go out of the house until morning. Or I had to run out to CVS and get some ibuprofen because my head was pounding with all this anxiety. No, no, no. Don't go out of the house. Or I wanted to go warn my friends who weren't sure what, what they were doing to, or whether they were going to participate in this Passover thing. No, don't go out of the house. You see what's going on? God says, don't do this. And when he says that, he means it. But we always want to kind of nurse that, don't we? We want to kind of fudge and explain our way. Oh, I know what God said, but... Friends, why is it that we don't think God means what he says? Why is it that we think that his grace is an excuse to sin and disregard his words? Why do we think that God's word is too restrictive and is not for our health and safety, but both physically and spiritually? We just say this is constraining us. What this text is screaming at us in this section is this. The lamb was sacrificed, but you have to do something. If you're a Hebrew living in Goshen, you have to apply the blood to the doorpost. If you're a person living in the Bay Area in 2020, the lamb has been slain, but you must believe and demonstrate that belief by applying the blood of the cross. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, to apply the blood of the cross is to say to the Godhead, you are right. I have lived my life in rebellion against you. You are right, God. I deserve justice for my sin, and I'm guilty before God. You are right. Being restored can only come through a substitute. That person is Jesus Christ. You are right. Jesus, as my substitute, gave his life as a sacrifice and paid for my sin by shedding his blood in my place. And I believe by listening and repenting and obeying you that I will be saved from the destroyer. See, Jesus Christ died on the cross. The sacrifice has been paid. There is a, now a way of salvation. But it doesn't just like out there and then you have to do nothing. No, you don't have to work for salvation, but you have to receive the benefit of that blood by belief and repentance. Now, friends, the destroyer is not Satan, but the angel of the Lord. It's the very presence of God in carrying out his judgment on mankind. One day you will stand before the Lord and you will give account. You will either be welcomed into heaven because you have trusted in the blood of the Lamb, or you will be cast into hell because you rejected over and over and over again the blood of the Lamb. So be sure you're ready to meet your Maker. Be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure you will be held accountable. So be ready as one who has listened, obeyed, and applied the blood of the sacrificed lamb. Well, that's applying the blood, but that applying the blood is also pointing to the fact that 
This is what God was doing to get them out of Egypt. And that's what happens in verses 25 uh, through 27. In particular, we see there, you know, this is what you say to your children. What does it mean? Well, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So it reminded God's people that life for God's people comes through death. That protection comes through provision. That salvation comes through a substitute. Now, that's the first thing they need to remember. Remember your salvation. But they also need to remember their sanctification. And this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the emphasis in this whole feast is the removal of leaven. Once again, we see the command that God gives is both specific and it is strict. We might even say severe. But friends, God isn't messing around. He means what he says. If you leave your home, if you don't apply the blood, you will suffer judgment and death. Here now, four times they're told not to eat anything with yeast or leaven, and twice they're told that if they did, they will be cut off from Israel which is another way to say they'll be banished from the community of God's people. Now let's just highlight the four main instructions that we have here. Again, four words. Remove, don't work, observe, and eat. So we'll think about remove. It says here in verse 15, On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. God isn't treating you like a teenager who when the father says, son, clean your room, and the son says, did you clean your room? And the son says, yes, dad, my room is clean. And the dad knows and everyone else knows that all the son has done is swept stuff under the bed and thrown dirty stuff in the drawers just to make it appear clean. No, God is extremely serious. He means what he says. This was a time to clean house, to sweep every presence of leaven out of the house. Now, God isn't being ridiculous here. Yeast is something that can be airborne. But the people to whom he is speaking know where the leaven is being kept. Now, what is leaven? Leaven is yeast. We, we, we often don't understand the, the image or, or how this all works because we usually go to the grocery store and Get our bread. Some of you are more trendy and you have bread makers to make your bread. But many of us have not actually made bread this way. But in order for a dough to rise, there must be the presence of yeast or leaven. And so whenever a batch of dough was made, an initial batch of leaven was kneaded into the dough. But before it was put in the oven, a, a little ball of that dough was set aside. Right? The bread was baked, the next day would come, that little ball of, of dough with the yeast in it would now be mixed into the new batch, and so on and so on it went. Okay? So now, when God is talking about getting rid of the leaven, he's referring primarily to these lumps of dough that, he had, uh, that people had set aside. They knew where the dough was, 
but they would also sweep the house to be sure that no seeds of leaven uh, or yeast remained because there was an airborne side of that. So you get the picture here what's going on. It's a call to get rid of lumps of leaven that you are aware of, but also seeds that may be present in the house. Remove. Deep remove, right? Secondly, no work. The only work that could take place was the preparation of the unleavened bread. So this is a time when you're not working, and when you're not working, you're supposed to be focusing then on the point of the feast, the point of the celebration. Observe. In other words, you are to carry this out. You are to do this. All right? Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. This is a time to be, I would say, celebrating, not in the sense of, woohoo, yay, yeah, but celebrating the sense of, this is important. We're going to gather and we're going to remember. And then eat. Look at verses. 18 and following, in the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Verse 19, if anyone eats what is leavened, the person will be cut off. Verse 20, you shall eat nothing leavened. Again, so the emphasis here then is remove, no work, observe, eats. In other words, this isn't just a ceremony, but a ceremony that is supposed to cause you to take note and remember the significance of the historical event. So why was it important to keep this feast? What was God seeking to accomplish in his people by having them observe this feast? There are really only two answers, one that looks back and one that looks within for the purpose of then ultimately looking ahead. Looking back, first of all, to remember. It was to remind the Israelites of their quick and hasty departure from Egypt. Now, I realize in the context of our story, they haven't left yet. These are instructions that are given to them uh, to, to, to say, this is what you need to do, right, from this day on. But they are going to remember now how quickly and how hastily they left. They didn't have time to bake um, uh, leavened bread. They could only use unleavened bread. And so it looks back, and it looks back in a symbolic meaning to say we had to leave quickly. Secondly, though, it looks within to remove. It was a time to look within and consider if there was any leaven in them. So in the Passover, God uh, got Israel out of Egypt. But now, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, God is seeking to get Egypt out of Israel. See, salvation, getting out of Egypt. Sanctification, getting Egypt out of you. Friends, in the Passover, God wanted them to remember their salvation. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, God wants them to remember their sanctification, how he had gotten out of Egypt. Now they needed to get the remnants of Egypt out of them. Now, friends, if, if you came to faith any time kind of, you know, later on in your years, teenager, you know, college, or even beyond that, you know that as you embrace Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, as you responded by faith to the call, you brought into your Christian walk all sorts of sinful habits and behaviors. You're bringing Egypt, so to speak, into your walk with God. 
And what's happening then is God is saying, now that you are mine, now that you've crossed the threshold of salvation, your job now is to get the Egypt out of you. This is sanctification. And your life now is going to be a pursuit of this. So when we talk about getting Egypt out of you, we can look at a number of things. But this was true for the Israelites, and it's also true for us. God had saved them with a view to their sanctification. And God has saved us and called us to sanctification, to pursue holiness, to be sweeping the sin out of our hearts so that we can follow Him fully rather than be dragged down by our sinful inclinations. In other words, He wants to finish the job in us. For Israel, they would continue to struggle with what they were familiar with in Egypt. They were familiar with the gods of Egypt. They were familiar with the enslavement that they were experiencing or the lifestyle that they had in Egypt. You say, it wasn't much of a lifestyle. No, but it was what they knew. And we tend to be comfortable with what we know. They were familiar with their food in Egypt. Now, how can we be certain that this is the correct interpretation? How can we be sure that Exodus is using leaven or yeast as a symbol for sin? Well, we can look at the New Testament and we can see how the apostles looked back and understood the connection. This principle here, of course, is called interpreting Scripture with Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed, even though God may have used various human authors to write His Word. He was superintending what they were saying. They were writing their books and their poems and their Gospels and letters, using their own personality and style, but God was in the back he was behind it all, breathing His Word into existence. So one part of Scripture interprets or sheds light on another part of Scripture. So we must embrace that interpretation. Now, in the case of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the New Testament teaching is clear. And here's what Paul says to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-8. through 8. And this is in the context of sexual sins. That's what he's addressing here. He says, your boasting is not good. They were boasting about um, incest taking place in the church. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Do you get that? That leaven permeates, grows, expands, affects the whole lump. That's the picture there. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You are unleavened. So don't allow leaven to remain, right? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Here's the reason why you do this. Because Christ has been sacrificed, therefore you are cleansing out the old leaven. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we see here plainly and clearly that the Feast of Unleavened Bread um, is, is mentioned here along with Christ the Passover Lamb and keeping the festival. The yeast is further identified as sin, specifically boasting, malice, and evil. And unleavened bread is identified as being void of sin, thus sincere and truthful. Now friends, Jesus also uses this image when speaking to His disciples. He says, be on your guard against the yeast or the leaven 
of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, friends, here's, here's the point. God wants us to remember and to rejoice that we have been saved from something, sin, bondage, darkness. But he also wants us to remember and rejoice that we have been saved for something. So we've been saved from something, but we're also saved for something, to root out sin and the remnants of the old life. So in 2 Timothy, we're told that God has saved us and called us to a holy life. In 1 Peter 1.16, the apostle Peter quotes from the Old Testament and says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is a command to those who are already His. In other words, the pursuit of holiness is a fruit of salvation. It is not the root or the means of salvation. The scriptures are not saying you need to be holy before you can be saved. They're saying that salvation comes and there's nothing in you that's worthy of that salvation. You are sinners saved by grace. But the moment that you are saved, you are then called to a life of sanctification, of pursuing being more and more like Christ and rooting out that leaven of old life, that leaven of Egypt. So part of what it means to live a holy life is to sweep away sin before it has a chance to grow. So here's the point again of this section. Even a small sin is dangerous because like yeast, it wants to spread. If sin is not rooted out and swept away, it will leave a whole lump. It will spread and grow and infect and impact. And as it relates to Egypt, here's what we find in Joshua 24 and verse 14. It says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. Well, this is, this is after they're in the promised land. And Joshua is saying, look, you still are struggling with these gods of Egypt. You're still going back to them. Be faithful to God. Serve Him with sincerity. Get rid of the leaven of the old life. Get rid of the leaven of Egypt. So what does all that look like in the church? Or the life of the believer. I want to speak first of all generally, and then we'll look specifically. And I'm going to speak generally here from, uh, from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. We're saved for sanctification. That's the general statement. That's the theme of this sermon. And here we have in Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, these words. For the grace of God has appeared. Okay, it's God's work in providing salvation through Christ and His death on the cross. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, uh, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. So you can draw a line, so to speak, through this text. 
renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, right? Live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. Be pure. Don't be lawless. There's something that we're called to because of what Christ has done for us. We renounce and we live. Friends, Israel left Egypt behind and they did it quickly. We are called then now to pursue holiness as well. We are called to be holy generally, but now we're called to pursue holiness. They might sound one and the same, but I'm trying to drive here that there are some particular things that Scripture calls us to do in the process. We are, first of all, to exercise ourselves or train ourselves toward godliness. 1 Timothy 4.7. This means you use spiritual sweat by applying the spiritual disciplines for the glory of God. That's reading your Bible, that's prayer, that's meditation, it's worship, it's serving. All these things are disciplines by which we are exercising our spiritual character and growth. We are in Ephesians 4.22, also in Colossians, and we talked about putting on and putting off. We put off the old man, we're renewed in the spirit of our mind, we're convinced of what is true, and we are put on the new man. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are putting on what God wants us to, to replace then, these old sinful habits. And then Colossians 1:28 and 29, which happens to be the theme verse of our church, we are to present every man complete in Christ. Let me read it for you here. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The idea then is this maturity comes from a life of progressive sanctification. We're helping people grow. We're helping them prepare to stand before God. For this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's the role of an elder. That's the role of a pastor. That's why I get passionate. Why? Because part of my responsibility is to help people to grow to maturity in Christ. And doing all these things, we're looking to do two things. We're to identify sin in our lives and to identify idolatry. Areas that we may worship. Sin might be clear, all right, this is a sinful behavior, I see it in Scripture, but idolatry isn't necessarily always clear. Idolatry can be something good that has now taken the throne in our life, and we are now functioning based on that good thing. It has mastered us. And we are to sweep those things away. God is calling us to periodically do some spring cleaning. In college, we called it white glove when our rooms would be inspected. Now, friends, hear this. If a church, a denomination, or a Christian institution fails to take God seriously, they will begin to drift in little ways. They'll begin to tolerate sin. They might say, it's not that important. It's not that big of a deal. It isn't a serious issue. And before long, the leaven of sin has had its way, and the church turns liberal. I don't mean that in a political sense. I mean that in a, in a liberal religious sense. 
They stop believing the Bible is God's Word. They stop actually believing that Christ died on the cross for our sins or that has any impact. The denomination starts to remove or move from its founding principles. The institution separates itself from its created purpose. It drifts. You can think about the Ivy League schools all across the eastern coast of our country that were established as schools for training pastors and missionaries. Places like Harvard and Yale and Brown and Penn and Dartmouth and Princeton, and there's a whole slew of others, started as seminaries to train pastors and missionaries. Today, however, their school of religion would laugh and scoff at our belief in the scriptures and especially our belief in penal substitutionary atonement, that, that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross actually happened or means anything. And they would think it's silly that we're trying to live a holy life. Secondly, friends, if individuals fail to take God seriously, they'll begin to tolerate sin. They will not be guarding their eyes from materialism or sensuality. They will not be guarding their lips from lying, deceit, and manipulation. They will not be careful about what their feet or where their feet take them. They will not control their hands. They will not be discerning to listen to what is true, but will be gullible and believe just whatever happens to be coming through Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is at that point in time. One has said it well, to be at peace with your sin is to be at war with God. To be at peace with your sin is to be at war with God. Friends, in light of the season of life that we have had to endure recently, here's a serious question. Is your response to COVID-19 or the Black Lives Matter um, protests, realities recently, is your response to those two things evidence of your sinful heart or is it evidence of a heart shaped and molded by the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's a very important question. In the case of the pandemic, are you functioning by fear or wisdom? Are you treating others with care or selfishness? Are you more concerned about your comfort and convenience or are you concerned about people's lives and their health? In the case of Black Lives Matter, what are you struggling with? Is it fear? Fear that you might be exposed as a closet racist? Is it anger because people are trying to change the status quo? Is it outrage because people are being treated unjustly? Is it selfishness because you don't want your status in the world to change? You want your rights to remain? You want to be sure of your comforts? See, in both of these cases, friends, what have you found yourself worshiping? Who have you been listening to? What has been driving your heart? What are you holding on to? It doesn't matter where you are in the scale of, uh, of you know, we, we're for cover, we're not for cover, we're for Black Lives Matter, we're not for. What is driving your heart? Paul helps with these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Let us consecrate ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 
See, ultimately, our response to COVID or to Black Lives Matter is an issue of the heart. I know churches last week and the week before, pastors got up in their churches and they said to their congregation, you need to repent. Everyone here needs to repent. We need to repent. Friends, I understand there's there's, there's a need to repent, but here's the thing. I'm not going to say that, but I'm going to ask you, if there's something that you need to repent of, (laughs) then repent of it. If there's a way that you've responded inappropriately, not just to those two things, but to other things, God calls you to repent as He exposes the sin, the leaven in your heart. What does He call you to? He calls you to repent. Friends, what leaven are you holding on today? Where or in what room of your life are you unwilling to take your spiritual broom and start sweeping? Now, if it feels like I'm preaching to your heart, to your sinfulness, to your struggle, you are right. Not because I want to single you out. I don't have to. But because this is the struggle for all of God's true followers. We're called to progressive sanctification. We're called to day by day, hour by hour, be seeking to become more and more like Christ, to pursue holiness so that we will be able to be more mature in Christ. And as we're more mature in Christ, we will then respond rightly, Christ-like in these contexts. We'll be able to think clearly. The truth of the matter is that we will never attain perfection in this world. We can't, only Jesus could. But we must be working toward holiness. And it is a daily battle full of discipline, honesty, repentance, and joyful determination. Now I want you to notice the response to God's instructions we find in this text. Found at the, at the end, the end of verse 27, and verse 28, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So we have here worship and obedience coming together as a response now to this appeal to celebrate these two festivals. Unfortunately, friends, we're living in a day and age where people who identify themselves as Christians think nothing of living in blatant disobedience to God's Word, but who gather for church on a Sunday to passionately worship God in song. Now, this isn't the first generation that's done that. This has happened through the history of the church, and it will continue to happen. But friends, God sees right through that, doesn't He? Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the scribes because they were worshiping God in disobedience. And he quotes Isaiah, who was addressing the same thing among the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Here's what what he says. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And when King Saul disobeyed God, this is what the prophet Samuel said to him 
in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. We can come to a church gathering and sing all sorts of praise songs and, and just get caught up in the emotion of it. And many times that happens in churches that tend to be far more focused on the, the form uh, the, 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 the image, the, the, the movement, and the sound. And people come and they sing and they sing songs and they have these expressions of praise, but they have just come from living a night of sin before and are not coming repentant. But friends, you know what? That can also be true of us. To come before God, claiming that everything's fine, knowing that it's not disobeying Him, but now wanting to worship Him. God says, I see through all that. My friends, may the example of the people of Israel here encourage us. Worship God passionately by listening to and obeying God's Word faithfully. May they encourage us to see that we are saved to be sanctified. Friends, my prayer for us here at Gateway Bible Church, in the midst of all that is going on, it doesn't matter what's happening in the world. I mean, it matters, right? But it doesn't matter to apply God's truth. God's called us to rest in our salvation, but not just stay there. That salvation is the means by which a new life has started, and He has called us now to live in such a way that we are becoming more and more like Christ, that we are pursuing holiness, that we are being sanctified. How? By looking for the leaven and sweeping it away. And friends, this is something that God wanted to have before His people regularly. And friends, this is what we are called to, to do regularly. First of all, to reflect and to remember, have I drifted? Am I pursuing Christ as I reflect, as I remember? Then to repent and to renew. Is there sin that needs to be repented of? I need to renew this walk. You know what I'm talking about. You've been struggling with sin and, and hungering with that sin. And finally you repent and now you want to renew your walk. Right? This is what God's calling us to. And then there's this rest and repeat. That was we rest in the truth. The fact that we have this covenant with God. That He has called us to be His children. And when we fall on our faces or we get back and entangled into the sin that is around us that we brought into our Christian walk, we can, yes, we can reflect, remember, repent, and renew, but once we've done that, we can rest. But here's the thing, sin's going to raise its ugly head up again. And you're going to have to go through the process again. And you're going to have to reflect, and you're going to have to remember, and you have to repent, and you're going to have to renew, and then you're going to rest in the gospel. And friends, every day, this is what God is calling us to. But friends, the joy of this is that we are still part of God's family, even though we struggle with our sin. But He wants us to actively be pursuing, rooting it out, to become more and more like Him, to become more and more like the Lamb, the Passover Lamb. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Lord, we, 
we realize that sometimes your word seems distant from us. As we even take time to study some feasts and festivals, it seems like what could you be saying to us through something like this? And yet, Lord, the significance behind these are so practical and helpful for us today. Oh, Lord, what a beautiful thing it is to not be under your wrath because your Son has been and is our substitute. Lord, salvation is beautiful. But Lord, not only that, because of your salvation, you have called us now to live a life of pursuing holiness. And Lord, that, that's not an easy journey. And yet you promise to be faithful to us on that journey. So Lord, by your Holy Spirit's strength and with his counsel and the word of God in our hearts, would you give us, Lord, this heart and this passion to be shaped and fashioned in such a way that we are pursuing what you want us to be. That we would recognize the importance of placing ourselves in the path of sanctification so that we can grow and become more and more like you. Lord, we, we praise you for what you've done for us. Now, Lord, we seek to honor you by living our lives for your glory. And Lord, may we do it with a joy and a humility, and a teachability. For your glory, we ask these things now in your precious holy name. Amen.